You're listening to the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. We sit down with some of the most highly regarded experts in the field of rehab, from physical therapists, athletic trainers, and much more. We dive into what makes them tick and hear about the lessons they have learned along their journey. Come listen to what these experts have to say. And welcome inside to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have Shannon Fronick. Shannon, welcome in. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, Shannon, for the people who don't know who you are, why don't you give them a little bit of background about yourself, uh, where you grew up and where you went to PT school, and kind of what got you into being a physical therapist in the first place? Yeah, so I um, am from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. I went to undergrad at Wilmington College in Southern Ohio and did my bachelor's in biology, went to PT school at the University of Dayton, um, spent a couple years working in outpatient orthopedics before I went to do a sports residency at St. Francis University. Uh, for those of you who may not know, that's a smaller Division One university in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so that was a great experience and a lot of benefits there with just being a smaller D1 school too. And then after I finished that, I started doing some work as a traveler for about a couple of years. And in the process started doing more sports like volunteer work on the side and started doing a manual therapy fellowship through uh, the American Academy of Manipulative Therapy. And then 2019, finally landed a gig with the Philadelphia 76ers and their G League affiliate, the Delaware Bluecoats, until the pandemic came and changed our lives, <laughs> like everyone else. Uh, yeah. So, and now I'm working as a, a traveling PT again. So that's about it. So you said that you worked in outpatient orthopedics for a while, but what drew you to sports to do a sports residency in the first place? I was doing my last clinical rotation in PT school and it was primarily in outpatient orthopedics, but there was a little bit of sports medicine coverage working in the training room at the University of Dayton. And I have played athletics pretty much my whole life, didn't play in college or anything, but I just fell in love with being in the environment all over again. And I didn't have a lick of a sports medicine background. And so that was the moment I realized that um, I really needed to go on and pursue a sports residency. And so it just took me a couple years to kind of build up my resume, sort of speak, and build up some more experience before that finally happened. So, yeah. Gotcha. And so talking a little bit more about your time in residency, uh, what were some things that you found super valuable? Obviously, they have a lot of didactic and like venue coverage, but what was some other things that you found valuable when you were doing your residency at St. Francis? Yeah. So when I was looking for programs, like every program has offers, you know, something unique to it. And one of the things that 
I really felt I was lacking in my background was sports specific exposure. So being on the field and doing like acute injury management and just kind of being involved at like a higher level athletic setting and knowing how to like manage the environment and things like that. Um, so things that I particularly enjoyed about my residence residency experience was a lot of the on-field coverage, being able to be involved with football and basketball, and also having the ability to, to kind of like create in a way, like an experience for myself. So even being able to, um, help out a little bit in the weight room and doing some stuff with, you know, the strength conditioning coaches and developing relationships with that. And then um, I think another unique aspect too was uh, with St. Francis was their, uh, how the physical therapists were integrated into their uh, concussion program in terms of the evaluation process, reassessment, assisting, um, being involved with the initial, uh, return to play steps, like that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And so then after that, you went on to do a, uh, manual therapy fellowship. So, um, obviously you felt a calling to, you know, improve some, some, something else, but what were other, you know, aspects of that decision-making process when you were like, okay, I finished a residency. I want to go do a fellowship now and specifically in manual therapy, what went into that decision? I think some of that was driven by um, my physical therapy program um, in terms of just some of the professors that I had and just having a very strong manual therapy background. And I just personally felt that that was a way that I could differentiate myself in a way um, at that like high performance level. And as a physical therapist, like that could be like my niche or something. And then, um, you know, cause every, a lot of people wear multiple hats and I just thought that like, that was something else that like I could bring to the table um, because I don't have an athletic training background or I'm not a strength and conditioning coach. I have the certification, but you know, um, so that was just something that I felt that like I could bring to the table that might be a little bit more unique. Gotcha. And so I, I've heard of the manual therapy fellowship, but kind of break down what goes into exactly kind of like how long is it and what are some things that is included in the fellowship? Yeah. So the program through AAMT is typically a year long process. However, mine was extended out to be a two year program just because of traveling and then getting my job in the league and different things like that. But it's typically a combination of, uh, you know, hands-on coursework, um, you know, in-person learning, uh, mentorship, research. Um, what else? What else is there to it? But a lot of it too, the, one of the main reasons why I chose again, like that specific program was a lot of the hands-on coursework. So the dry needling certification, spinal manipulation, extremity manipulation, uh, you know, getting some exposure to uh, ultrasound guided dry needling and also the uh, being able to 
utilize dry needling in the cadaver lab and getting to appreciate some of that tissue depth and, you know, uh, just things that you don't get to see very often on, you know, however many years out of PT school. So it's definitely like a different appreciation. So, uh, yeah. Gotcha. And so obviously for both residencies and fellowships, mentorship is a huge like component of it. Cause you want to have people that are, you know, going to be good teachers and good, um, like colleagues of yours. So what are some things that you were looking for in mentorship in particular? It's always just someone to bounce ideas off of, right? Um, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. We all hear that all the time. And uh, it's good to refine that clinical decision-making process and also get another person's perspective. Sometimes we all also have our own biases. And so I think just being able to have someone at your disposal to talk through some of those more complex cases or to get some ideas, different ideas for treatment strategies or approaches and and things like that. Um, was really helpful. Gotcha. And so during your time in residency and fellowship, obviously research also plays a huge role. Like you said, uh, you're obviously reading a lot of literature to kind of keep, keep up to date and learn more things. But even after your time working in residency and fellowship, when you were working with the Sixers, even now as a traveling PT, uh, obviously it's important to continue to stay up to date on the most current evidence. So what do you do personally to kind of stay up with that? Cause that's one of the most, the toughest things. Cause after a day of working, it's not like you want to go and read a bunch of articles. So what do you do personally to stay up with literature? Gosh, I know, right. It's, it's overwhelming, uh, for sure. So I, I appreciate this question. Um, cause I feel like I, I can never know enough. Uh, and then when you start going down one, one rabbit hole, one thing leads to another, and then you end up with a folder of a hundred articles and then you never get to it. So, uh, yeah, I think, so one good thing that I came to appreciate in just in particular, just slight tangent working at the pro level is you are, you are integrated in a team of very intelligent individuals and you are all working closely together all the time. So you are, you are never alone. Um, and so that's, that's the great part is that you don't you don't have to know all of the best things all of the time. You have people there that, you know, everyone's goal is the same. You know, keep your players available, get them better as quickly as possible, get them back in the game as quickly as possible. So, you know, that's that's a team effort. And so in that regard, it, it almost kind of takes the edge off a little bit um, as opposed to, I think right now, in particular, working as a traveler, I feel like a little bit more, have to have a little bit more self-responsibility. I can't rely on like a whole team of people to, to help me with my caseload, right? So um, outside of the residency and fellowship, I find it best to focus on one subject area so that I don't get overwhelmed with a bunch of things. Uh, so maybe I feel like for the past year, I've been really focusing on 
tendons in particular and and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of been my focus area at one point. And then I also just try to listen to or follow a few key researchers or um, educators that I kind of resonate with in my in my thought process um, that offers um, maybe to like a different way of thinking about some things. Uh, so so yeah, I think it's important to to kind of find like a target area and focus on that for a little bit and grow in that area. And then also find like, just, you know, focused, focused learning is helpful. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. Cause like you said earlier, I can create a folder on my phone and all of a sudden have, you know, 20 different articles and I just, it's overwhelming and I don't go looking back at it. So just focusing on one area or one muscle group or one body part is probably the best way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go a little bit into your time working with the Sixers, um, you know, until COVID decided to shut down the world. What were some things that you, you know, working at the pro level, uh, when working in a larger sports medicine team, what were some things that you thought made a successful, like, communicator, whether you were communicating with, uh, you know, a strength, the strength staff or the position coaches or the head coach or anything like that? Listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Especially since I had not had exposure in the past at that level, just soaking it all in like a sponge um, and just learning how the environment works and how to navigate it and knowing what to communicate to who and at what time uh, is important. Um, so I think, uh, listening is very helpful, listening and observing and just taking that all in initially. Uh, and then just also to sometimes picking up a lot on those nonverbals too, from people and learning how to just read the players better, read certain, like reading the room. And, uh, so I think a lot more of communication at that level too, in particular is, isn't necessarily communicating but more so listening especially when you're just starting off and so i wanted to talk a little bit a question i always ask um a lot of pts when they come on here is that end of stage rehab where let's say for example let's say acl case and they are trying to get back onto the court they are about like nine months out you know industry standard nine months out and they're beginning to or they, at this point they've probably begun to do like on court or you know drill work and stuff like that where do you kind of draw the line or how do you begin to that transition from end phase rehab into sports specific training? Or is there anything in particular that you like to do to kind of get them back into playing shape? Yeah. So I think at, at that level, that sports specific rehab is always incorporated. I think at, in, in some capacity, it's just how this, I guess like what percentage at what time is sport specific, right? Cause you're always going to want to try to incorporate something at some stage, no matter what. Right. But when it's really like that end stage rehab phase, it, it kind of comes down to how I think sometimes like the organization is set up, um, what your role is also your skill level and knowledge too. 
um, and just like how things are set up. So I think with uh, my team in particular, um, how our medical performance staff was set up at the G League, it mimicked what you would see with the Sixers in terms of I am a physical therapist and that is the hat that I wore. And we had a strength and conditioning coach who also functioned in sports science. And then we had an athletic trainer. So it was a very um, integrated approach. And depending on what a player's injury was and what our knowledge and skills were, that pretty kind of determined at what stage who was more in charge of what. Um, So for instance, like with the soft tissue injury, like I was more involved in like that early stage And then our strength conditioning coach was more involved in that like later stage. Um, But we still overlap throughout the process and that may change depending on what the injury was. Um, And that could vary too by organization. So it all just depends. Gotcha. I think that it depends is like the the greatest PT saying of all time, but also every organization, you know, everyone I've talked to kind of structures is a little bit different. And so that's why I love to ask that question because I don't think there is a right answer. And I think, hearing everybody's perspective is the best way to kind of, you know, formulate the most comprehensive thing for getting an athlete back to play. All right. Yeah. So what to you makes a good sports PT? You've been around, I'm sure a lot of great ones throughout your time, traveling and residency and in fellowship, and then even working at the professional level. But what to you makes a good sports PT? A lot of it comes down to, from like a clinical standpoint, just having a very strong, you know, clinical decision-making process, being very analytical, um, details matter. Um, Minutes matter, time matters, days matter, especially at the high performance level. So um, being able to make strong clinical decision-making is key. But I think also too, at that level, I mean, at any level too, but I I think it's, I feel like at every level that I've been at, right, at at residency, at division one athletics, especially even compared to high performance, it it just takes it up a whole notch for sure. Like at every level, I feel like it's, there's just, there's just a greater uh, emphasis on that communication piece. Um, So again, being a strong communicator, knowing what to say, when to say it, and who to say it to um, is also key. Gotcha. And then um, last question I got for you, Shannon, is do you have any advice for anybody that wants to be a sports PT, whether it be an outpatient or professional level or the collegiate level, any piece of advice that you've learned that you would like to give to everyone else? Yeah, I love this question, Um, especially since I was in the league for, for a hot second. And then now I'm not what I appreciated us. And, and two, when I was, when I was in the league and I was going through my manual therapy fellowship and I'm learning all of these extremity manipulation and spinal manipulation skills, practicing on a pro player may not be the best thing. So, (laughs) you know, having that trust and stuff, uh, is important. And so, now that I'm out, um, although the plan is to get back in at some point, right? Um, I am very much so appreciating mm-hmm. getting more of my reps in, really honing in and, and refining 
my manual therapy skills, you know, just getting more reps in with, you know, orthopedic case scenarios that, you know, you, you see very similar injuries for the most part when you're involved with one particular sport, like such as basketball. Um, and so, and so developing, again, like some of those practice patterns and getting that experience down and, and getting the most, like getting those reps in, just appreciate that process and try to get as much exposure as you can, because that's, that's time that you won't get back once you are at that level. And so it's only going to make you a better clinician once you do get there. Gotcha. I think that's great advice. Uh, the most, ex the more exposure you get, the more, like robust of a clinician you're going to be because you're going to be able to see more things. And when that one rare thing does pop up, you might have seen that somewhere else and you kind of have a little bit of background on it. Um, and hopefully, you know, that can better inform when you're working with that current patient. Um, yeah. Well, Shannon, that's, this has been great. I'm finally glad that we got to meet, I guess, over, over Zoom, I guess. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or anything like that? Uh, no, you can follow me on Twitter, I guess, if <laughs> Shannon Marie DPD. That's the only real uh, professional social media handle that I have. Uh, but I don't really have anything else that I do outside of that. So not at this time. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much um, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day. Um, and this has been the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to Shannon Fronick for coming on to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. If you like this episode or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.